Hello, this is Melissa Hale-Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here this morning with a new author, John Hanlon Gordon II. Welcome. Thank you. I am holding in my hand a prototype of his book called Liberty's Flight, and he plunges in to a war scene. I'm just going to read you the very, very opening. Culloden. Patches of reluctantly receding snowdrifts sprinkled the frozen brown moor while cold April wind drove stinging sleet. Lord Cumberland, second and favorite son of King George II, along with 9,000 British regulars, Hessians, and lowland sons, were drawn up in front of us in battle formation. Our 5,000 Highlanders were drawn in two ragged lines, most of us sporting clan tartans and the Jacobite white, say this word for me, cockade. What an opening. It gets us right in the middle of the Battle of Culloden. So tell us, why did you start your book there? Well... It goes back to my grandmother who gave me a box when she died, and she was the family historian for the Gordons. And Alexander Gordon was the first of our family to arrive in Philadelphia, and it was about a year after Culloden. So I started the genesis of this tale based on that little bit of family lore. Oh, my goodness. So your family had someone there? Well, that I don't know, but I do know that Alexander is buried in the Carlisle American Revolutionary War Veterans Cemetery. So So the timing was there. The timing was there for a Jacobite to come here, and many were, and attempt to reestablish liberty as they saw it, knew it, lived it. Um, In my youth, I traveled around following Johnson and Boswell's route through Scotland and the Highlands and was there. I guess I'm mispronouncing it. You say Culloden. I always thought Culloden, yeah. Yeah. And it's just such a... Such a sight, the way that we go, you know, to see Gettysburg or something. Well, yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Hollow ground, I call it. Yeah, yeah. So, have you been there? Have you? Uh, No, I have never been to Scotland. I had to do a lot of research to pull this together. And I was very, very lucky in that I have a Scottish brother in law who was a, a doctor out at Cornell. And uh, so he was able to uh, tell me about the species there. Um, Actually, I had found out things that he didn't know. Um, Scotland apparently used to have goats, but when they reapportioned it, and now it's sheep. So, you know, things happen. Yeah. Well, so what made you decide? How old are you? (laughs) I'll be 69 on the 1st of September. Well, congratulations. What made you at age 69 decide to write not just a novel, but what will be the first in a series of novels? 
Well, I actually probably started it at age 60. And uh, for the past seven years or so, I've been uh, working very closely with my father, uh, John W. Gordon. And uh, we published um, one of his books. He had already published two. And we also made an anthology of short stories. So I had a lot of time to work with him, kind of find the ins and the outs of the publishing business doing that, going to you know signings and whatnot. So it wasn't... Um, when did I start it? Uh, I fell down on an icy parking lot wearing cowboy boots and broke my shoulder and had six weeks off. So oh. that's when I had the time to start it. Um, I retired three years ago. Pop died two years ago. And so it didn't take me long to finish this um, first book. Uh, I'm about halfway through the second book in the series. So I'd like to hear about the series, but I first want to back up, if that's okay with you, and just kind of tell us about your life growing up. I want to tell our listeners, I handed Jack, you go by Jack? Uh, Well, Pop always was Jack. Uh, I'm John or Jack, doesn't matter. Okay, (laughs) well, I handed John this week's edition of the paper, because he has a a story about his book in it by um, Rose Schneider, and he was flipping through and found a picture of the beautiful Greek revival house on the main street in Rensselaerville and started launching into a story about that. So I'd just like to kind of back up and hear a little about your family history, who's in your family, where you grew up, and how at least two of the members have become writers. Well, my great-grandfather, Reverend Dr. John Ogden Gordon, came to Rensselaerville in the 1870s as a Presbyterian missionary. Uh, In the summers, he conducted the services well into the 1920s in the church. There were several different reverends went in and out, did the summer. Um, My grandfather, uh, they had a summer house. He built it in... um, 1892, uh, now owned by the Kesslers. It's got big Greek columns on it and all. And he was also president of Howard University back when they didn't have equal opportunity. They were lynching black people for no good reason. Uh, So he was quite a guy. Uh, His son, my grandfather, he lost his leg in the First World War. And my great uncle was also gassed. He was an artillery man. Uh, Graham was a pilot and shot down, crashed, uh, hit a tree. They didn't have parachutes. He was flying a French plane, a Newport 17. And after three amputations in gangrene, he recovered and went on and uh, had two children, uh, Catherine and Jack, the infamous Lucky Jack, (laughs) who... uh, was sent to Yale at age 18 and ran away. Joined the Canadian Infantry uh, after deeply being stirred by the Winston Churchill address, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the cities, etc. And that had a profound impact. Plus, his father had been, you know, really badly mangled in the First World War. So, 
He ended up in the Royal Canadian Air Force as a navigator, uh, trained in Western Canada, and rotated to Scotland, to Tudsbury, believe it or not, which was the home of Torpedo Squadron 2. And they trained for action against the Germans in Tunisia, Rommel, the Africa Corps. Their mission was to sink to German supply shipping, and it was a night operation. They were flying twin-engine Wellingtons doing that. Um, Rommel disobeyed Hitler, pulled out of North Africa. Uh, Pop got shipped to India. Um, Ord Wingate was his commander. He always named his dogs Ord, and they were big <laughs> dogs, tough dogs. Um, and Pop... Uh, Joined the United States Army Air Corps in, I think, late uh, late 43, and was assigned to the 27th Troop Carrier, which was basically flying the C-47s across the hump from Imphal, India, to Yinang, China, and it was Japanese airspace, so... He almost got shot down. He was Lucky Jack. He was on planes that made it, and planes that he should have been on and wasn't didn't make it. Uh, just Lucky Jack, you know? So that name really stuck. Oh, yeah. So at the end of the war, he came back, and he took my grandmother, Avery, to a play. <laughs> do you know what the play was? Yeah, I do. I would never marry a man from Yale. That was the name of the play? That was the name of the play. (laughs) And he commenced to go to Cornell Agriculture College. Farmed for the rest of his life. Writer, author. Uh, Four of us baby boomers. Muriel, who is a justice piece. Myself, I'm next, even though Muriel will say I'm oldest. And uh, Sandy, former legislator here, 16 years. And our baby sister, Pam, who's still on the original farmstead. And where is that original that farmstead? That is in the town of Brooms, Schoharie County, uh, on the backside of that big forest preserved by um, what is now Parks and Recreation Training. Nice. So, and yeah, it's up she, in the hills. It's does a, she farm it? Is it still? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've got all kinds of critters and horses and beef and whatnot going well, on. Well, how nice for you to still have your family homestead. Well, we, have, we don't have it all, but uh, we, have, um, we have a good chunk of it. Well, what there. a fascinating family history. And war played such an important role for uh, all the men in the family. Uh, what about yourself? I see just so... Listeners know, um, John is wearing a very <laughs> colorful shirt. An eagle is holding an American flag, and a banner runs through that says, These colors don't run. So tell us about your own military history. Semper Paratus, as the motto of the United States Coast Guard. I enlisted in the United States Coast Guard on 16 October 1967, and I served there for four years. Wait, how old were you in 1967? My uh, math is not I that quick. I just turned 18. Oh, so as soon as you were able. As soon as I was able. But in those days, there was a thing called the draft. 
My father informed me about infantry and why not to be in it. And I uh, went down, took the ASFABs, scored very high, and uh, got in the Coast Guard. Um, upon getting out of basic training, Cape May, New Jersey, I was assigned to Coast Guard Cutter Kikui, WAK-186 out of Honolulu, Hawaii, which was known as the workhorse of the Coast Guard Pacific Fleet. We were Seabees. We serviced Loran, which is part of aids to navigation. We were under aids to navigation. That's a division of the Coast Guard. So we would bring buoys. Um, well, it was an emergency thing, actually. Uh, it was just before the TAT in 68. And we had been refueling Loran stations on our way across when we were headed to the Philippines. Um, all of a sudden, they slapped all these 20-ton buoys on us, sea buoys. Uh, they had decided that they were going to take the Mekong Delta all the way to the Cambodian border. Uh, the river comes into Phong Tu, runs up to Saigon, River Po, etc., etc. And they were going to make all these bad boys red, bright, and returning because, you remember, Vietnam had been French. And the French don't know about red, bright, and returning and our colleagues at the United States Naval Academy didn't know about French buoys. So, <laughs> wouldn't you know, they called on the Coast Guard and said, you guys are going to put these buoys wherever they're supposed to be. So, for 19 months, I was on Karkakui, and um, we hauled buoys, we built piers, we built runways, we were on islands, we were in the Philippines... Uh, we did not do onshore operations at um, in the Vietnam. We delivered there, but we didn't actually, you know, CBs did it there. Um, and then I went back to New York. Well, I went back to California to Governor's Island, New York, in July 1969. And a lot had changed. The first thing that had happened is when I was in San Francisco and went to call home, they wanted to know my area code. And I go, it's Middleburg. <laughs> <laughs> i never forget that. Yeah. And so we had a long go around, but we finally found the area code and got home. Uh, 16 weeks on Governor's Island. Uh, I was by that time an E-4 radar man. And I luckily graduated toward the top of the class. I saw my old skipper from Southeast Asia, Bagpipes Mosier, what a character, World War II veteran, etc. Real tough guy, but a great guy, and Scotsman. He used to play his pipes under the bridge, and if you were standing to watch, and you're looking around to see what's out there, and all of a sudden, the bagpipes start to pump up, it makes you almost jump over the side. <laughs> I, well, it would be an unusual thing to hear there. Gosh. So... Long story short, uh, then I went to WAGB 281, Coast Guard Cutter, West Wind Polar Breaker, built in World War II. Uh, we did two trips to way up north in Greenland, north of Thule. Um, did one uh, Great Lakes tour, and then the 
fourth tour, we um, started down Chesapeake Bay. It was out of um, Curtis Creek next to Baltimore. And instead of hanging a right, headed toward the Panama Canal, we pulled a left and we went to Greenland in October, November, December. Uh, Strategic Air Command had a cable broken up there. They wanted us to go get it, fix it, make it good. Uh, We had to abandon that at 65 below zero, 24 dark wind. Uh, We had two Danish breakers with us, too as well as the first nuclear-powered icebreaker, uh, John McDonald, Canadian. We would break ice all day trying to get to the spot, and he would catch up to us in an hour. That thing was an animal. Hmm. Um, Our evaporation flat broke down. That's where you get your fresh water from at sea. Uh, We limped into Newfoundland, finally, at about... 35 below zero, when you spit, a pellet hits the deck, ting, 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 and your breath is frozen. And at 40 below, you better put something over your face. And at about 55 below, if you're trying to bang on a a shackle or a turn pin or whatever, it may break, the hammer may break. So you, you just, you can't do anything in that cold. So. so you went from extreme heat <laughs> to extreme cold. Oh yeah, cold so then we then we bugged to Newfoundland. We uh, pulled into uh, Rhode Island, uh, got the evaporation flat fixed. I remember I called my grandmother because it was just before Christmas, and I said, and she said, "Well, I'll just come down and I'll write that captain a check." And I said, "Grandmother, you stay the hell away from the ship." <laughs> So you had a very involved family your whole Well, life. yes. My grandmother, uh, a complete motivator, read us Winnie the Pooh, um, took us all kinds of places. And her brother, who was also a World War One pilot, he actually trained my grandfather, and he had the um, watch. My grandmother journeyed all the way from Long Island to uh, just about where Lackland Air Force Base is now. It's where they trained. And he was an instructor, and he had the duty. He was the officer of the day, and he said, meet my friend uh, John Gordon. We call him Hambone. <laughs> and uh, she said, <laughs> this was hilarious, the next thing I knew, we were upside down flying through the hot Texas air. And she said, it was so wonderful. Oh, gosh. So he took her up and barrel rolled her and won her and... After it's he quite was quite a way wounded. to court a woman. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, she was. <laughs> she decorated Blair House one time. She was an interior decorator. Oh yeah. Well, I noticed you mentioned Winnie the Pooh. What what literature shaped you growing up? What what led you to write the way that you do? Pop. <laughs> his writing. Well, his writing, uh, my writing, uh, my favorite authors, you know, uh, kind of a blend. Um, I read every single Louis L'Amour book that's ever been written. Uh-huh. I read Ken Follett, uh, Northwest Passage. Uh, as a matter of fact, in my next book, I'm going to cover that little foray of Rogers going to St. Francis. So 
Adventure is at the heart of your reading. Adventure. And tell us why you decided to make this a novel. Kind of give us the outline of the novel. We start uh, with this epic Scottish battle, and where do we go, and who's who's involved? Who's involved? Yeah. Um, the cover kind of gives it away. Okay. Uh, at Just, the top, you see the... Um, oh, you see the Culloden, battle of the Brits against the Scots. Which is an original painting yeah. shortly after the battle. A very famous uh, absolutely painting. Absolutely historically correct with the Highlanders on the south flank attacking Hessians yeah. point head on. Um, the next one without looking... Of course, that's the Scottish flag in the middle, the battle yeah. flag of Scotland. Uh, we run into pirates. Um, we befriend and free a slave in Philadelphia, and we um, become involved in the struggle of blacks in colonial America. We know Ben Franklin, who He's lives in near us, and we also have a, uh, a very close friend who's half Tuscarora and half. Scottish. So um, are you roughly following what your family's history was in this, or is it a fictionalized... Uh, it's fiction. Pop said, uh, the good thing about fiction is you can make it up. <laughs> That's true. And so who's the main character in the book? Uh, Alexander. Alexander and Moray, his, uh, well, first lover, then wife, then mother of the clan. And... No story is complete without a love story. That's true. Uh, but it seems like adventure has the upper hand in this. It does. Yes. And uh, that is an author struggle because you don't want too much adventure. I mean, you want adventure, but you don't want to, you know. Well, it seems like right from the first book in your series, and I want to hear about the others, you've isolated some of America's major themes that we're still dealing with today. Exactly the point. Um, exactly the Native the Americans, point. the role that they have, the people that were brought here from Africa as slaves and still have struggles right. <laughs> despite emancipation. How, how have you coalesce these in the book what what's your main character what what is his name and what does he well he um sort of just through happenstance you know goes from one little adventure to the next depending on who he meets and and what they decide they're going to do um the emancipation of uh the main black character and the other thing is is when i write the next one's it has come to me that I can no longer write in the first person because you have to be more a narrator in the second person. Um, so this is because the first I have person. To inter- that, that's in the first, first person. person account. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the title itself, when I read it, I didn't know which way to read it. Is it Liberty's Flight like it's running? Exactly. Or is it like uplifting? <laughs> no. Flight is running. Liberty's flight. Yes. Panic. Fear. Okay. So um, the next book is... is Where in the time period? It it started in Uh, the mid-1700s. This guy starts in 1747, and it ends, oh, about 1755. 
The next one will start just... So, so let me just think, 1755, we're in like the French and Indian War. War. Okay. The French and Indian War has just really started, and... And is he involved in this war? Oh, big time. Okay. Big time. So the English are reeling. The English Empire collapsed from Baton Rouge to Quebec. French had complete domination. Ohio Valley. The French pushed the British all the way back to German flats from Oswego. They pushed them halfway to Albany out of uh, Lake George. And so he'll get very involved in a lot of local, well, I would say regional uh, activities, you know, in pushing them out and... um, He's also going to get wounded in the next book. He has to go home sometime, doesn't he? (laughs) Well, there's an epic, you know, pattern of male journey and return, starting with Odysseus, where uh, once he returns, he sort of sees things differently, does this character? Well, they do, and and they have a family that's growing out about them, and it's just one of those things you just can't ignore. And you have another generation coming up, and uh, the oldest kid is going to be um, like an illustrator, sort of the pre-news of the day. Oh, Mike, so you're going to work the honorable profession of journalism into this as well. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, so just, I mean, if he's fighting on the side of the British, he has basically a happy ending then because the French get pushed back. The French get pushed out, but uh, there are a lot of nuances in there, and uh, we are uh, going to develop several of the actual characters who are French. Pouchet is one. He is just a tremendous commander. He was in charge of the Ohio Valley, and then he um, ended up command of Fort Niagara, which was taken by Sir William Johnson. Sir William Johnson I introduce in this book. So Um, you have real historic figures interacting with your fictional figures. I take advantage of that rich tapestry of history, and uh, that is your guiding light. That's how you get, you know, from uh, vignette to vignette, if you will. So how do you work as a writer? Like, do you have an outline, as you say, from vignette to vignette and think of how your characters are going to perform? Or, like, what process do you go through? Uh, it's dynamic. It's, it's not the, never the same. Never the same. Um, essentially... Well, what happened was, is I was at a, a book signing for my father, and we were all at Barnes & Noble, and we were, like, shoulder to shoulder, and, you know, there was really no room to move or anything. And I was standing next to a gentleman named Vince Andre, and Vince, who is uh, regional from here, had won the Seamus Award for Best Detective Novel in 2015. A very likable fellow. And um, so I was just uh, popping all kinds of questions. And I said, well, how many words do you put? Because it looked like his books weren't all that big. And the book I was selling was this big and this high and probably 200 <laughs> So 000. he's indicating like a telephone book size, just so listeners know. Yeah, a little bigger, but yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he said I shoot for 65,000 words. I'm like, okay, so I dialed up all word perfect what I got home and found that my first volume was already at 180. So you write on the computer? 
You're writing. I have graduated to it, but I actually started on paper. Longhand. Longhand. I think best longhand, but I'm getting to the point where I can do it on a computer. Yeah. So where where does your series go? Have you blocked out through yes. history how far you're going? Uh, well, I have aspirations. Let's put it okay. that way. Okay, all right. But the first three, which now that you're committed, have got to happen. Uh, Liberty's Flight. Uh, and then the next one is going to be uh, French and Indian War period, uh, probably ending with something like the stamp tax. You know, uh, the colonies are going to start heating up. They'll have that. There was a depression then also. That is never good for peace. And um, that will be called Liberty's Seedling. Uh, so something has been planted and is growing. It just started, yes. Okay. Embryonic. Right. Followed by um, Liberty's Crucible. And the Crucible will be the American Revolutionary War, and it may be 180,000, because it's going to be big. And I sort of in the back of my mind it says that it is not complete because I'm looking to kind of lay out history in an enjoyable palatable way that people can sort of understand how we transition to what we are today and I'm seriously thinking of uh, Liberty's um, forged steel Instead of Crucible? Or no, no, no. The, the Civil sequel. War. Oh, Civil, the Civil War. War. Do you skip over the War of 1812? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going we're to we're jump right, right. We're going to jump 65 years Just into the future. Leapfrog. All with the same characters, the same family? Um, well, at that point, those characters would be pretty old. Uh, of their, I meant their progeny, the way you've gone through but, your generations uh, yeah, of Some family. will definitely be progeny or, yeah. or whatever, and I actually have a family story about that. Um, Let's hear it. My grandmother, Gordon, was a Worth. The Worths were from Nantucket. Paul Worth was the first American Yankee whaler. W-I-R-T-H? No, O-R-T-H. Worth, just as it sounds, okay. And um, he rounded Terra del Fuego, uh, Streets of Magellan, and came back on whale ship Beaver with 2,100 casts of whale oil from the Pacific. And he was the first guy to do it. He was also the first Yankee to fly the American flag in a foreign port. So, the worst were on Nantucket, and that's, you know, kind of where they started. Uh, Ben Franklin, his mother was um, uh, Priscilla Folger, who was a sister to one of my great-grandmothers. So there were only like 14 families on that damn island. And actually, as a kid, my mother would say to us when we had done something profusely stupid, this is what you get with 100 years of inbreeding in Nantucket. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so it sounds to me that you are richly informed of history by your family's history. Oh, absolutely. And you're kind of drawing on 
how important it is to you to create characters that make it come alive. Does that sound? That's pretty much the mission. Yeah. So our time is nearly over, but who should read this book? Who who should pick this up and and delve in? Who's a who's a good candidate? Well, here's the way I look at it. There's about 330 million people in the United States. If you got to what percent of them, that would be 3 million readers, approximately. And you hope that um, historians are going to like it, uh, school teachers will like it, well, old school teachers, I don't know about new ones, and um, uh, reenactors of... the the people from the heartland, the people whose families, uh, it doesn't matter if the first veteran in your family was from the Gulf War. People who have skin in the game and people who are keenly interested in, you know, the history and because, as you pointed out earlier, a whole lot hasn't really changed since then. I mean, technology has changed and medicine has changed and we've been on the moon and blah, blah, blah. But as far as humans, same stuff. You know? You had your Harry Reid over in the House of Commons. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you had, uh, uh, you know, King George II was King George II. There's just nobody like him, you know. It's like there's no two Donald Trumps. There was no King George II. He was the last English king who sat in the saddle in the old charge. So... Well, thank you for talking to us with such vivid, vivid stories. It, it, I hope they leap off the page the way they come out of your mouth. I try to do that. Um, I try to uh, keep it as unwordy as possible and uh, as factual. The historical facts are pretty much right on the money, um, and the fictional characters are fictional characters. Well, thank you, John. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.